Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. I have an army. We have a Hulk. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play? To lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you? You're a laboratory experiment, Rogers. Everything special about you came from the bottom. I put a bullet in my mouth and the other guy spit it out. He's my friend. So was I. Nobody spills the secrets because nobody knows them. The city's flying. We're fighting an army of robots. And I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! I'm gonna die surrounded by the biggest idiots in the galaxy. Oh, I'll get that up. The, the Under Channel. The Under Under Made up names. Um, I'm Spider-Man, then. The under channel you become part of a bigger universe you just don't know it yet welcome true believers to the un- why'd you guys sneak into my notes <laughs> <laughs> no. Damn it, welcome true believers to the under channel versus the marvel cinematic universe this is robert under at my side turning knobs and man in the drops aaron hello hello and our resident dummy steve excelsior today we're going to be talking iron man released on may 2nd 2008 and directed by John Favre. Iron Man was the first film to be released and is the third film chronologically. The film that started it all acts as the origin story for the character following uh, Tony Stark through a hostage crisis that has him questioning a legacy of dealing arms. These movies have been talked to death, so we're not going to go too deep, but here's a couple points I'd like to discuss. Superhero movies before Iron Man. Iron Man establish the superhero movie as in I don't want to say an art form they weren't just for kids anymore yeah. or they weren't just for people who had grown up with those comic book characters even when you would have Batman movies in, in the 90s or, or before that it was still very specifically designed for that fan base it took the camp out yeah well Iron Man opened up comic books to the rest of the world and said hey man you know we don't have just this came out right this. this came out right before Dark Knight, right? The Dark Knight. So like those two movies changed everything. Mm-hmm. So what Batman Begins would have been a few years before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of the start of the new superhero trend where superhero films aren't just for the nerds, they could be for everyone cuz everyone really liked the, uh, Batman Begins. Yeah. I think, you know, Robert Downey Jr. just had that mass appeal though. He's got the looks for, you know, maybe female fans or, or gay fans. Can't forget those. Um, that would have... Uh, Steve, come on. I know. Come You're on. dropping out? Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> you had the mass appeal of a character. Somebody who, obviously, his career had gone down a little yeah, bit. it was a so gamble. It was, but a lot of people still remembered Robert Downey Jr. fondly from his early parts of his career. And he looked the part. Oh, absolutely. He, he looked the part. He yeah. looked... Yeah, I feel really bad for the next person that's play Tony Stark. Yeah, I, I don't think they can. Yeah. I guess it wasn't that much of a stretch for Robert Downey Jr. to play an asshole rich guy. Right? <laughs> I'm assuming he's had a quite a few years experience with that. But with that, is Tony Stark the only lovable, uh, likable billionaire that's ever been put to film? Like, think of another like character who is that rich and has that much power who's actually liked. Traditionally, somebody with that role is always the bad guy in those movies, or in movies in general. Yeah, because if you think Batman, there's a separation there. It's it's Bruce Wayne, and then there's Batman. They're the same person, but they're not they're the, not same, the same, person. same person. Bruce Wayne is a fake. Like, um, the moment Bruce Wayne's parents died, he became Batman. Right. Yeah, it's, it's almost the same as Clark Kent and Superman. 
Clark Kent <laughs> is not the cool part of the character. If they could make it where Superman never turned back into Clark Kent and explain it, they would. I'm trying to think of a, a super rich person, like a billionaire style. And the only person I can come up with now, and that's kind of the inspiration behind what they started doing with Iron Man, is Howard Hughes. But you don't like Howard Hughes. You feel sorry for him because he's just gone. He's out. He's, he's beyond sanity. Whereas, you know, Tony Stark is totally with himself. He's arrogant, sure. He's kind of an a-hole, sure. But he's got a lot of endearing qualities to him as well. Yeah, the one I kept thinking of was Richie Rich, the Macaulay Culkin. But, I mean, that's a kid's movie, and it's... Honestly, his parents are the ones who are rich, and they're not painted in a great light either. They're painted as very uh, disconnected from their family, you know, which is a very common very, thing. Very for, disconnected from the world. From the world, yeah. So with Tony Stark, it's like, wow, they're actually kind of showing you that rich people have feelings too, right? which is kind of lame to say. But <laughs> it, was, it was a really cool, uh, a cool route to take. This movie being the first in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it really isn't the traditional, you know, CGI slobber knocker that you've become accustomed to. Mm -hmm. Other than the very first scene where he's escaping from the Caves. the cave yeah. with that built armor, there really isn't an action scene until towards the end of the movie. Exactly. The rest of it is just pure character development. You get to see him come up with the Iron Man role. You're saying hi to Carter? Yeah. Agent Carter? Oh, it's Marvel. <laughs> I really liked it. I think that as much as we may have panned the Incredible Hulk for that same quality, it worked with this movie. Because you had different layers. There was Tony Stark coming to grips with himself as a person. There was Tony Stark's relationship with Pepper Potts. There was Tony Stark's, even though this is a shortened version of it, his friendship with Rhodes and how they kind of looked out for each other. And then you had the biggest undertow throughout the movie is Tony Stark and Obadiah Stane and how Stain really was... Jeff Bridges. Jeff, this time it's <laughs> yeah, Jeff Yeah, you Bridges. got it right. Congratulations. Bald Jeff Bridges. Yeah. He played the role so well. He was and great in that movie. Great. And a lot of people, when that movie came out, they did not like Jeff Bridges as Obadiah Stane. I remember that Being was a cast. big criticism. Yeah. And they didn't like him having seen the movie. Oh, you're saying they didn't yeah. like his role. But... It was a, he was perfect. He was exactly yeah. I he, mean, it made sense. It made sense. Looking. Thank God they shaved his head because I think that was the key to it. Well, yeah, because then it would have just been well, I mean, Jeff Lebowski. I think <laughs> I think in the comics, Obadiah is bald. He's bald. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you got to stay true to the character, but sometimes they don't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had to convince Jeff Bridges, like, you go, Mister Clean, on this one. No, Jeff Bridges always wanted him to shave his head. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say this in a trivia. Got but to live his fantasy. He did a really good job of making you believe that he had Tony Stark's best interest he in did. mind in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, because it was a great undertow. Having not, unlike a lot of people, I watched this movie once when it came out, and then I watched it again when I was prepping for this. I didn't remember him. When he betrayed him. When he betrayed him. Me so, either. like, when I watched it and he goes, hey, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but the board, you know, they're the ones who are making the decision to try to do this. Like, I believe that he really had his best interest in mind. My first thought was, well, they're going to kill him and go that route. But then when it turned, he was like, I'm the member of the board who voted that. I, was I like, forced you out. I was like, damn you, Jeff Bridges, you bastard. <laughs> you fooled me again. <laughs> you got me again, Lebowski. <laughs> the bum's lost. <laughs> Last part on this, being the first of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this movie does not hint at a larger overall story arc until the very end. The very end. Yeah. The end very credits. end. And I wonder, was that always meant to be there? It was. 
so when they wrote Iron Man and they knew they were going to do this, they, they came into it saying, hey, at the end of it, we are going to plug this. They were cautious with how they did it because they didn't know if they were going to be able to do it. And there's a reason why it came at the very end, too. Because they could have cut it. Because <laughs> they could have cut it, yeah. No, it was, it was good. It was, it was the movie. It holds up on its own better than if they if they never did another Marvel movie after this one. I think it's held up the best of all the other ones I've watched. It doesn't feel like I need to watch anything else to really enjoy it on its own. To close out the first part of the show, we decided to feature a single piece of dialogue that we felt best captured the essence of the film. So allow me to paint you a picture. After using the Iron Man suit to defeat Obadiah Stane and regain control of Stark Industries, Tony Stark stands before the podium at a press conference. There's been speculation that I was involved in the events that occurred the freeway and the rooftop. I'm sorry, stubble. Mr. Stark, but do you honestly expect us to believe that that was a bodyguard in a suit that conveniently appeared despite the fact that... I know that it's confusing. It is one thing to question the official story and another thing entirely to make wild accusations or insinuate that I'm uh, a superhero. I so, never said so you were a superhero. Didn't? Mm -mm. Well, good, because that would be outlandish and uh, fantastic. I, I, I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I've made, largely public. The truth is, I am Iron Man. If you like what you heard so far, more episodes are available on YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. Our website is theunderchannel.com, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Over 21 movies in 11 years, the minds behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe have worked to craft one of the deepest interconnected film series of all time. It's time for Aaron to tell us just how Iron Man ties into the overall storyline by serving up some connective tissue. First of all, we all know, just as you stated, it started it all. This is the beginning to what everything happens and why we're all clamoring and we're all excited to enjoy these movies and these storylines. So, we alluded to it earlier, the scene with good old Samuel L. Jackson at the very end. No, it wasn't shit. It was a good scene. No, I said, holy shit. <laughs> oh, I thought you ended that. You said shit. I was like, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a great scene, but... <laughs> so, what happens is Tony Stark goes home gets to his house and he realized security's been compromised uh, Jarvis isn't responding to him things are open so now his guard is up he just got done getting rid of Obadiah Stane so now he's on alert and you hear the voice in the darkness Samuel Jackson Nick Fury comes out and he basically lays it out to him you think you're the only superhero you think you're the only one that can do things you're part of a bigger world, you just don't know it yet. I have a love-hate relationship with Samuel L. Jackson. I really enjoy him in some movies, but from the outside of watching these Marvel movies, I always thought it was an odd choice. Because he's... Having he's, him be Nick Fury? Yeah, because he's so established outside of him. It's yeah. like I always thought, I'm going to have a hard time losing myself in the character. Well, here's here's what it is. This is why Samuel Jackson is Nick Fury. Okay. Is it because the new Marvel... The new uh, Marvel era has Nick Fury ju looks just like Samuel yes. Jackson. So the Ultimates, the Ultimate, the, that's what it the was. comic book series that was released in the early part of the century, they based the character of Nick Fury around Samuel Jackson. So they had who they wanted to be. Like, could you imagine if Samuel was like, I don't want to do that. 
Yeah. They would be crushed. Favreau and Fahey, all those, they would have been crushed. Yeah. And when it's already been proven, Samuel yeah. L. Jackson does not say no to a role. Exactly. So. Yeah. And that's also why they put it at the very, very, very end, because they didn't want it to interfere with the origin of Tony Stark and who Iron Man is. So that's why it came at the very end. It was like, how would this fit in if we put this in the and people would be like, oh my God, Samuel Jackson, because he was a bi- he's a big star. And that's not what this movie is. Mm-hmm. So that's why it came at the very end. So some of the other things that tie you as an issue to Iron Man and Tony Stark, which is the best part about it, is Tony Stark is Iron Man. They say that from the beginning of the story and understanding that there's this force in the world now and it is Iron Man and it is Tony Stark. They're the same person. They don't hide his identity like many comics, you know, storylines do. Tony as a person, you're introduced to him as this arrogant, cocky, rich guy who really is full of himself, full of what his company is, full of what he does as a person. And his character arc, as we'll explore, is one of the most ever-evolving characters throughout the entire universe. He first starts out as being a powerful, ego-driven guy, but eventually he's humbled and he relearns what it is to be moral and good. And that was in contrast, like we were talking about with Captain America, he is good at his core. Tony is too, but he has to kind of relearn exactly what it means to be noble, what it means to be that moral center, what it is to be that compass. He's got to be willing to do that because Tony's main part of his personality, he is willing to sacrifice some of his character because he knows he can make up for it with his technology, his money, his, his intellect. He's able to overcome any shortcomings he has as a person because eventually he does know that he's going to be a good guy. He's not really a Boy Scout in any way, shape, or form, though. It's fun to watch his character just evolve throughout the whole thing. The next part, and I think this is one of the neat parts to really enjoy about Iron Man and how he develops, is the suits. The different suits that he has. Overall, Tony has probably 60 different Iron Man suits. You got Mark I, which is what you see when he fights the Ten Rings and he escapes from the cave. Just that big hulking made from scraps. It shows exactly how smart Tony is as a person. You get, you only get three of his suits in the first Iron Man. Mark II is the one where he experiments with it to kind of learn how to make it fly and stuff. And that's what Rhodey sees hanging up in the, uh, the lab. And it kind of alludes to War Machine, even though that's not the War Machine model altogether. And then you have Mark III, which is the classic red and gold suit that he you see him wearing when he goes into his revenge scene against the Ten Rings when he eventually goes back out there. And it's modified a little bit in his, his scene where he fights Obadiah Stane. So you get those three marks, but you're going to continue to see Tony's suit change through every movie that Iron Man is involved in, and there's a lot of them. And that's really a cool thing to watch is to pay attention to that little piece and how his suit will change because it's a lot there's a for a movie company to be like all right next let's get him this let's get him this suit let's get him this suit let's get him that suit let's keep making these suits because that is the character mm-hmm. you know he develops so many different suits ones that go under constantly the water. evolving yep constantly evolving even to the point where back in like the comic book days 70s 60s they wanted a suit that had a nose on it 
And Stan Lee was like, that's just ridiculous. Why would his suit have a nose on it? <laughs> Skunk man. Thank God for Stan. Thank God for Stan. He lost the fight, but eventually won it in the end. When Marvel launched the MCU, they redefined canon for every one of their characters. This version is now the public perception of Iron Man. John Q. Public won't be referring to the quarter bins when defending their superheroes' badassery. They'll be talking about these movies. But that doesn't mean the stories being told are original. So let's check out where the studios found their inspiration. First and foremost, Tales of Suspense number 39 from 1963. The first appearance of Iron Man. The story of Tony Stark being captured and building a high-powered suit to escape initially took place in Vietnam. The U.S. was actually ramping up its military presence the same year and featured the communist leader Wong Chu demanding Stark supply him with high-tech weaponry. Piggybacking on what Aaron was just talking of, Tales of Suspense 48, the first appearance of the iconic red and yellow Mark III suit. This is the first issue to allude that there are multiple suits that Tony Stark would be working on to improve. The suit that he will be wearing in Endgame is actually the Mark 50. Nice. It's actually Infinity War and Endgame. He wears the same suit, but that's the Mark 50. So from this time this movie took place, which would be during the timeline 2008, to Endgame, so 10 years later. 50 suits. 50 suits. He's made 50 suits. And we only saw, like Aaron said, maybe 12 or 13 of them. So they have such a well hung in there. It's Tony's ever need to improve. It reflects who Tony Stark is as a person, all of his suits. He's always constantly wanting to improve as a person. Yeah, and it makes it more believable when you see, even throughout this movie, the amount of improvements he made and how quickly it happened. Finally, Iron Man number 166 from 1983. Though initially being introduced three issues earlier in Iron Man 163, it's this issue which brought Obadiah Stane to the forefront as an antagonist after Tony Stark refused to do business with him. Stain seizes control of Stark Industries, renaming it as his own, and eventually building the Ironmonger armor, which is the basis that he wore in this movie, from a notebook that Tony left behind on his desk. Half the fun of watching these movies isn't just what you should be paying attention to, it's the little pieces of fanfare hidden in plain sight. It's time for Steve to strap on his floppy ears and share some Easter eggs. All right, I think this is well known, but this movie was not completely finished when filming began because the filmmakers were more focused on the story and the action. So the dialogue was mostly ad-libbed by Robert Downey Jr. That's pretty cool. He did a good job of ad-libbing. That's great, yeah. He actually... Who says he's not a great actor? <clears throat> totally method the whole thing. He would actually ask for many takes on each scene, and both Gwyneth Paltrow and Jeff Bridges, they memorized their lines to a T, and they both had difficulty ad-libbing with Judd. <laughs> so he just but, went the Judd Apatow style. Yeah. Just keep rolling it and whatever works. Which makes sense for his character compared to the other live ones. Live from New York, it's Tony Stark Live! <laughs> Uh, this was Marvel's first self-financed movie. It was about... Yes, it was self-financed. Yeah. Jeff Bridges said, take the pressure off him. He um, Marvel Studios didn't exist at the time, right? Yeah. So to put the pressure off their minds, he was saying it was like a 200 million student film. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why it came off so good because they did it out of pocket. They did it wanting to make something great and really, and really tried. They really put their heart and soul into making this movie. Like we, we said with the Hulk, that was one that they made, but they played the safe route with it. This was their risk. Well, what I found interesting, and I'll let you finish up in just a second, the amount of money that Marvel movies had made in the past, it was Spider-Man 2 had come out before this. And that movie made $600 million. Yeah. 
But for Marvel, they only got about $40 million worth of revenue from that movie because you have to pay for the actors, you have to pay for the marketing, plus Fox or whoever runs yeah, those they movies. Own the rights. They own the rights. So Marvel only basically gets, hey, you get the fee for just having the character. You don't get any of that other money. Marvel so. was famous eventually for just like, they were the guy selling off their possessions at pawn stores. You know, they just sold their licenses to movie studios all the time. Oh yeah, go ahead, have Elektra. Go ahead, have the Punisher. They needed to make money some other way than relying on books. They weren't making a lot of money. I mean, they made money, but to make make a lot of money, they had to do something else besides just put out comic books in the publication. You guys remember seeing Tony Stark eating Burger King after he came back? Mm-hmm. He said, it's a um, gross choice." Talk about actually, when he comes and, back from from the cave. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. It's because in real life, Robert Downey Jr. was about to do a shit ton of heroin, I believe it was. But he, he thanks Burger King for helping him get straight in 2003 with a car full of drugs. He had a burger that was so disgusting, it made him rethink his life. Yeah, because Burger King sucks. It's a and, straight to the toilet. And he dumped the drugs in the ocean. He repeats this with a self-important sit-down session with his, with the press with, upon his return from captivity. And also, Burger King also was promotion was the main promotion for the film. Ah, okay. It's a weird one to understand that Tony Robert Downey Jr. was saved by terrible, shitty food. <laughs> That's just bad. That's about fast food is though. Yeah. It, oh, man. All right. I'm gonna eat Burger King, or I'm gonna do heroin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna eat this Burger King. It's gonna save my life. I guess the last thing we'll be talking about Stan Lee's cameo in this movie. He gets mistaken for Hugh Hefner because he's just surrounded by three hot supermodels. Yeah. I question was he supposed to be playing Hugh Hefner in that movie, or was it just like? No. It's just Stan Lee's just in a robe for some reason. He's just surrounded by three girls. He's like. And where was this scene at? It's in the middle of the movie where he's surprising everyone at the appearance of like a fundraiser. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was told Obadiah, not to go. Yeah. He was told not to go, that's and right. And Tony's like, yeah, screw that. And he's like, looking good, Hef. Pats yep. him on the back and you see it, Stanley. Yeah, that's right. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, more episodes available on YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. Our website is theunderchannel.com, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It is now time for the Marvel Cinematic Universe Giant Size Trivia Challenge. Aaron and Steve will face off daily to determine who's really paying attention as they attempt to slog through these films. Scores will tally throughout the month, and at the end, whoever has answered the most questions correct will be crowned the winner, and the loser shall face punishment. Um, so the way it works is I have three questions. The first will go to Aaron, the second will go to Steve, and the third will be open to whoever answers first. I've given each one a buzzer. Aaron, your buzzer sound is... Steve, yours is... I need to hear that sound before I get that answer on that final question. I'm very excited because I guarantee there will be at least one point rewarded in this round. So Aaron, after his rescue from the Ten Rings, Tony Stark has two requests from Pepper Potts, an American cheeseburger and a press conference. As his car pulls up to the uh, announcement, he will be shutting down in the weapons research division of Stark Industries. He is given a cheeseburger by John Favreau. What restaurant provided this cheeseburger? Burger King. That is one point for Aaron. You you sabotaged yourself, man. <laughs> All right, Steve. All right, quick question. Would you have gotten that if I didn't say if I didn't Hell say? no. Damn it! I remember him wanting a burger. I know that part, but I don't even remember him eating a burger or anything that were long. No, you lines, legitimately so. see the Burger King logo on <laughs> it. On the bag, yeah. 
All right, Steve, while perfecting the flight capabilities of the Iron Man suit in his home lab, multiple cars can be seen in the background. Nice cars. An orange Celine S7, a gray Tesla Roadster, and a 1967 Shelby Cobra painted blue with a white rally car number on its side. What number was on this car? Go fuck yourself. You give her an easy one? <laughs> um. How was that the easy one? It's just a number, man. It's just a number. I don't remember the number. If anything, the car what, is, is it the issue? No, is it the the year that Iron Man was created? I don't think so. There's only ten numbers. Yeah. I can't remember the. I don't remember. No, there's technically, there's not even ten numbers. There's eight numbers in existence. There's only eight digits. I don't remember. All right, that's incorrect. Number four. Incorrect. It is number ninety-eight. And I, I'm not sure. I think there is some sort of like significance to it because if you search 1967 Shelby Cobra Rally. That's the number that always pops up. So really? it, must, it must be a, a specialty something one. With that. Maybe um, there's only 100 of them made or something. But I would say. Yeah, that could be it. That's could not. That it. is the easy wrong. one. Because how long is that Burger King bag even in the movie? Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, but a lot of people know about Robert Downey Jr. and the Burger King story. I had never, I'd heard, never that. heard that before. You said and I researched yeah. it, too. That's a good That's a good one, though. That's actually really good. I, I, that's I that's a people, cool story. I thought more people knew that. Yeah, oh. and then this rally, this car We're teaching is people. in the movie. That's the purpose of the under channels to educate. Half the time that he's in the lab, that car is behind it. And also, it's the car that he lands on when he falls, falls through, through the roof. Falls through I, the roof. I know what car you're talking about. I just didn't look at the, the car. The car is basically the second most important character in this entire movie. <laughs> False, but go on. All right, let's, All just, right. let's do a question. Three. Last one. Stain reveals his intentions to Tony after causing oh short-term paralysis with a handheld device. He then pulls the arc reactor from his chest, which is disgusting, and marvels at it as a work of art. What other masterpiece does he compare it to? Mozart's Ninth Symphony. I'm going to have to go to the judges. I'm going to give it to you, but it's actually Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Oh, <laughs> that's good, though. though. You, got, you, got, yeah. you got half of it. Yeah. And with that, we end the show. But fear not, Shit, we shall return tomorrow with The Incredible Hulk. Aaron has two. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs>